careful. Mustn't get excited. Mustn't overdo it softly. Tiptoe. You'll get used to it in no time. Look at it. Beautiful. What a place to live. What a place to write. I shall be inspired. I shall turn out elegies and sonnets verses by the time at last I have a home and nobody will know. No one in the world. Nobody will know I'm here. I am free. I am free. Goodbye, my friends, and good riddance. Pardon while I disappear. Come see me soon in my hideaway. If you can find me, I'm here. Farewell, you blood-sucking landlords, pouring your threats in my ear. Good luck forever to you and yours. If you can find me, I'm here. And I'll stay causally hiding by day. During the day I'll resign, waiting till you go away. But at nine, master of all I survey, everything gets to be mine to own, mine to use, mine to write all the poems I choose. That is Anthony Perkins, star of Hitchcock's Psycho, singing a song by Stephen Sondheim in the 1966 television special of a musical based on the short story Evening Primrose. Now, I'm not playing this clip because of Anthony Perkins and Stephen Sondheim, although I might not have played the clip if it wasn't Anthony Perkins and Stephen Sondheim. The reason I'm playing the clip is that Evening Primrose is based on a short story by John Collier, who we are meeting here in Alfred Hitchcock Presents for the first time. It's an odd little story about a man who decides to secretly live in a department store, only to find out there's an entire community already there. Live in your barbarous jungle, screaming for ways to get clear. I just referred to it as an odd little story, but the truth is you could apply that to practically everything John Collier wrote. It wasn't really the direction he planned to go with his writing. John Collier was born in 1901 in London. His father was one of 17 children and couldn't afford a formal education. He ended up working as a clerk, which didn't bring in much money, so his son John and his daughter Kathleen were mostly educated at home, including by their uncle, Vincent Collier, who was a novelist, and who introduced John to the satires of Jonathan Swift. Collier biographer Betty Richardson says, from his first work to his version of Paradise Lost, Collier saw humans flawed but with potential, everywhere contaminated by narrow creeds, institutions, coteries, vanities, and careers. Wikipedia goes on to add, when at the age of 18 or 19, Collier was asked by his father what he had chosen as a vocation, his reply was, I want to be a poet. His father indulged him, 
Over the course of the next 10 years, Collier lived on an allowance of two pounds a week, plus whatever he could pick up by writing book reviews and acting as a cultural correspondent for a Japanese newspaper. During this time, being not overly burdened by any financial responsibilities, he developed a penchant for games of chance, conversation in cafes, and visits to picture galleries. He actually did publish his first poem at the age of 19, and eventually had a volume of poetry published. But his first break really came in 1930 with the publication of his novel, His Monkey Wife. Jack Seabrook at Barebones E-Zine writes that in this novel, the protagonist is tricked into marrying a chimpanzee and discovers that life with her is preferable to life with the vapid women he meets. He wrote two more novels after that, Tom's a Cold, A Tale, and Defy the Foul Fiend, or The Misadventures of a Heart. But essentially, the success of his monkey wife gave him an in for his short stories. He also wrote screenplays. He was living in France when, as he told Max Wilk for Max's book Schmucks with Underwoods, I saw a fishing boat I rather liked and I wanted to buy it. They wanted 7,000 francs, and I wondered where on earth I could find that much money. And would you believe, right then, some little girl came riding up on a bicycle to hand me a telegram. It was my London agent wanting to know, would I go to Hollywood to work for eight weeks at $500 per week? And I went out to Hollywood, and they were waiting for me. Delightful experience. A picture called Sylvia Scarlet at RKO. George Cukor was the director. I'd scarcely seen a motion picture in my life. I didn't know a thing about screenwriting. In point of fact, it was something of a mistake. Hugh Walpole had told George I'd be right for the job. George thought Hugh was talking about Evelyn Waugh. The film starred Katherine Hepburn and Cary Grant and was, according to Wikipedia, notorious as one of the most famous unsuccessful movies of the 1930s. After a disastrous test screening, Cukor and Hepburn reportedly begged producer Pandro Berman to shelve the picture if they agreed to make their next film for free. According to RKO Records, the film lost $363,000 and thus began a downturn in Hepburn's career, causing her to be branded box office poison, from which she would eventually recover. In spite of that, John did work on other screenplays, including Elephant Boy, starring Sabu, and an uncredited contribution to The African Queen. Still, it was his short stories that really made his name for him. Many of them were published in The New Yorker, Harper's Bazaar, Harper's Magazine, The Atlantic Monthly, and Esquire. And about 15 of the stories were adapted at one time or another for television. This story, Back for Christmas, was published in the October 7, 1939 issue of The New Yorker and was adapted for radio three times before it ever appeared on Alfred Hitchcock Presents. It also was adapted by EC Comics for crime suspense stories. We'll get to the original story and those adaptations a little later on. Even as his stories were being shown on 50s and 60s TV, John Collier spent most of the 1960s working on a screenplay adaptation of John Milton's Paradise Lost. It was eventually published in book form, but never produced as a film. He said of himself, I sometimes marvel that a third-rate writer like me has been able to palm himself off as a second-rate writer, and palm himself off he did, oftentimes in publications associated with Alfred Hitchcock. 
including one issue of Alfred Hitchcock's Mystery Magazine and six Alfred Hitchcock short story anthologies. He has seven total episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and one of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour as either story writer or teleplay writer. Interestingly, he never writes a teleplay of one of his own stories. His next is as story writer for Wet Saturday, episode one of season two, which is also the next episode directed by Alfred Hitchcock. John Collier died in 1980 at the age of 78. Jack Seabrook says, Like his monkey wife, many of his short stories exhibit a misogynistic theme, though Paul Theroux wrote that it is such a wickedly cheerful kind, it is irresistible. That is certainly true here, and it seems a perfect fit for Alfred Hitchcock, who we all know has his own misogynistic streak, sometimes irresistibly cheerful as well. As Darren on the movieblog.com points out, hell, Hitchcock even opens the episode with a healthy dose of good old-fashioned sexism, as he presents us with a shrunken head mounted on a stand. Oh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, especially the ladies. Now you see what might happen if you fall asleep under the dryer. Shrunken heads are a hobby of mine. Collecting them, of course, not making them. Takes too long to make one, first of all. You must wait until the original owner of the head dies. I haven't the patience for that. As you have no doubt already guessed, tonight's story has nothing whatsoever to do with shrunken heads. It is called Back for Christmas. According to the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion by Martin Grahams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom, there's actually a little bit more to this intro. After Hitch says, It is called Back for Christmas. He adds, Before we tell it, however, I would like all of you to observe one minute of silence out of respect for my sponsor. So here's Back for Christmas. First broadcast on March 4th, 1956, starring John Williams. Teleplay by Francis Cockrell, based on the story by John Collier, and directed by Alfred Hitchcock. John Williams should be familiar to us, and if he's not, he will be, because he's in 10 total episodes. This is his second. We saw him before in The Long Shot, episode number nine. We talked about him quite a bit then, but I do have two clips I'd like to play. This is Pat Hitchcock and Peter Bogdanovich on the Charlie Rose show. Oh, John Williams was wonderful. He was an old friend of mine. We'd done plays together, and he was a brilliant character actor. Got laughs. He got laughs that weren't there, you know. Yes. And this is from a short extra from the Hitch 20 series. Born in the United Kingdom, an actor for many decades on Broadway, John Williams made frequent appearances in the Hitchcock world. He started as an extra in the Paradine case, and Hitchcock soon cast him in the role he's most known for, Inspector Hubbard in Dial M for Murder, and soon after to Catch a Thief. Norman Lloyd said of Williams, he was the definitive Hitchcock actor, Everything in his style served Hitchcock's purposes. The underplaying, the subtle humor, the indirect approach that he had. When Hitchcock's TV show began, Williams' soft style became a favorite. 
Pat Hitchcock is right, John Williams is wonderful, and Hitch 20 is right as well, because the underplaying, the subtle humor, and the indirect approach contribute greatly to the viewer identifying with a character they really shouldn't identify with at all. And this little clip from the Hitch 20 Extra is probably gratuitous, but I enjoy the way they describe his characters here, particularly the last one. Among his many characters, he was a henpecked husband, a fall guy, a traveler, and even deceased. This is the episode in which he's the henpecked husband, and he was a traveler of sorts in the long shot. We'll see him next time in episode 26, Who Done It, in which he is even deceased. Francis Cockrell should also be familiar to us. This is his sixth script so far, after Revenge, which he wrote with A.I. Bezerides, Breakdown, along with Lewis Pollock, The Case of Mr. Pelham, A Bullet for Baldwin, and You Got to Have Luck, the last two co-written with his brother Eustace. Francis had a hand in writing all four scripts that Hitchcock directs in this season. He has 13 more episodes. His next, along with John Williams, is episode 26, Who Done It, which he also directs. I haven't mentioned cinematographers in this series, but I'd like to bring up John L. Russell here, because he, like Francis Cockrell, has worked on all of the episodes that Hitchcock directed in season one. In fact, he is the director of photography for all of the Hitchcock-directed episodes except for three. He's the cinematographer on 75 episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and 21 episodes of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. And he is the director of photography for Psycho, for which he earned an Academy Award nomination. His next episode, like Hitchcock's, like John Collier's, is Wet Saturday, episode one of season two. And John L. Russell died in 1967 at the age of 62. So let's get to the episode. The directors are not listed in the credits until the end, but one look at the start of this episode should leave no doubt that Hitchcock is the one directing this. Or rather, one listen, because we hear the sound of someone digging a hole before the lights come up on the scene. And when the lights come up, we're in a part of a basement where nothing is going on. It takes a slow pan of the camera for us to find John Williams, pipe in mouth, up to his knees in a hole, digging. The camera cuts to a closer shot, and we end up with a nifty little continuity error, which I'm not sure I'd have noticed except for Jack Seabrook mentioning it. His pipe is no longer in his mouth, and doesn't appear again for the rest of the episode. As he digs, a woman calls out, but he ignores her. He puts the shovel aside, and he reaches for a yardstick. There's a lead pipe, and he ends up jarring that. Oh, Herbert! With that second call, Herbert realizes that the woman is coming downstairs. So he quickly puts the lead pipe over into a little alcove. We will see that lead pipe again a little bit later. 
He then picks up the yardstick and measures the depth of the hole. Oh, and he responds very pleasantly to her. Yes, madame. She comes downstairs. Oh, there you are, working on your wine cellar. How nice. Yes, I thought I'd do a bit of the digging. And we get a very banal conversation. But what the conversation doesn't tell us, the camera does. Herbert gets out of the hole, and first of all, we get a close-up shot of him having to stoop a bit in the low-ceilinged basement, his head actually touching the ceiling. Jack Seabrook says this symbolizes both the boundaries that exist in his life and hints at the freedom he will seek in America. Jack also notes that before Hermione, his wife, enters the picture, Herbert is a man digging and measuring with confidence. Once she appears, he is henpecked and bowed, his eyes downcast. What immediately follows is pure Hitchcock. Herbert looks down at the hole, and the camera switches to Herbert's point of view, becoming, in effect, Herbert's eyes, as it follows along the length of the hole to Hermione standing at the other end of the hole. That pan immediately reveals the hole as a grave and leads us right to its intended resident, Hermione. Now, this is a brilliant sequence, not only because it shows us what is in Herbert's mind, but because it also disguises the dialogue. We're too busy looking at the hole and realizing what it's there for, and don't really pay any attention to that banal dialogue, which is not quite as banal as it seems. Herbert says two things to take on a different meaning for us, now that we know what that hole is for. There's nothing much else to do the last day, you know. You've got everything so well organized. We can immediately see that there's a plan involved with this being the last day, and there's a reason why Herbert may want to kill his wife. She organizes everything. Only moments after that, Herbert says, Well, I can do a little at a time. As a matter of fact, I think I've done about all that's necessary for the moment. Since we're in on this, this is a darkly comic moment. But because we're in on it with Herbert, but not in on things with Hermione, her comment in between those two Herbert comments sort of gets past us. She says, Don't you think this is more than you ought to do by yourself? I mean, I don't think you'll ever get it finished if all this has to be dug up. So we learn that Hermione takes charge of things, and then she says he probably can't do this alone. But it goes right by us. Further, Hermione tells him, Well, then come to lunch now. We have a nice surprise for you. The nice surprise turns out to be what they're having for lunch, but this comment does give us a hint that perhaps Hermione likes surprises. Hermione goes back upstairs, but Herbert goes over to his jacket, pulls out his passport, and we get a close-up of a page describing him and his wife. His profession is listed as metallurgist. His birth date is May 1st, 1902, born in London. He is six feet, one-half inches tall with gray eyes and brown hair. His wife is listed as a housewife, born on December 8, 1903 in Chelmsford, with blonde hair and blue eyes, and she is listed as five feet four inches tall. Five feet four inches. Now two inches, five feet six. Yes, that ought to be about ample. No use crowding. By the way, Hermione's parting shot as she goes up the stairs is, This just sounds dismissive, but maybe there's another reason why she thinks 
it's ultimately a waste of time. The camera crossfades to the dining room with Herbert and Hermione at the table. We're at the table, too, with the camera perched right about head level, maybe a little lower, and it barely moves any more than perhaps a head might turn when talking to two other people who are at the other side of the table. This puts us right into the conversation, even though we don't have anything to say. Their maid brings in the food, and Hermione says, Your favorite lunch, Herbert? Shepherd's pie. Well, it isn't truly my favorite, Your Honor. Of course it is, Herbert. You know how often we have it, and you always enjoy it. Do I? And we get a wonderfully restrained taste of the sort of thing that apparently is driving Herbert to murder. The rest of the scene shows us the extent of Hermione's organization. But we also get the idea that Herbert is perhaps a little absent-minded and needs someone to take care of him in this fashion. Uh, have, we, have you had the gutters clean now? Oh, ages ago. And the papers have canceled, the milkman. Have we any library books out? You took them back days ago. Oh, yes, yes. Hermione may be annoying, but it actually sounds like she takes very good care of Herbert. So really, there's no reason why we should be sympathetic to his murder plans. And yet we are rather on his side. One of the reasons for that is that John Williams does such a nice sympathetic job. But another reason is that we've been put in his shoes right from the beginning, and we have immediately become co-conspirators. There are other things said in this lunch scene that do a very nice job of presenting us with the exposition that we need. Oh, did you get my typewriter back? Oh, yes, it's in the car. Oh, good. Because I must send those articles back to the magazines. You know my impressions of isolated countries? The typewriter becomes part of Herbert's plan. But this comment about sending articles back to a magazine is never mentioned again. Are the curtains down in the bedroom, Elsie? Oh, I'll get them right after lunch, Mum. Good, because the cleaning man will be here this afternoon, and he'll keep them until we come back from America. I'll write you as soon as I know the exact date, December the 15th, probably. Yes, Mum. And while Hermione is talking to Elsie the maid, let's take the opportunity to look at Molly Glessing, who played Elsie. Now, IMDb and the Hitchcock Zone seem to think that Molly Glessing plays the maid in America and Teresa Harris plays Elsie. But that's actually rather an insult to the memory of Teresa Harris, who is quite significant in the history of American film. We'll get to her a little bit later. Now, there are nine other actors who have speaking roles in this episode, but they're all very small compared to Herbert and Hermione. That... And the fact that I played four clips last time for an actor who may not have even been in the episode is prompting me to include just one clip for each of the nine minor characters. I haven't been able to find out much about Molly Glessing in any event, besides the fact that she was born in Iowa, in spite of her apparently authentic British accent. But that accent serves her in good stead, as she plays yet another maid in what may be the best-known film on her bio, Charlie Chaplin's Limelight. Are you awake? Your husband said to look in and see how you were. Who? Your husband. And said I was to warm up some chicken soup for you. Husband? Here. Bax, let me help you. Come on. You know, you haven't eaten a thing all day. Some nice warm soup will do you good. Thank you, Lou. Your wife won't eat. Well, that's a blessing to a poor married man. You'll find her in the One Step Beyond episode, The Secret, three thriller episodes, The Cheaters, Well of Doom, 
and the Closed Cabinet. Episodes of Pete and Gladys, Father Knows Best, and Dr. Kildare. Her last credit is in 1964, where she played an android in The Time Travelers. She is in seven total episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Her next is The Orderly World of Mr. Appleby, episode number 29. And Molly Glessing died in 1971 at the age of 79. Let's get back to a little bit more of that lunch conversation. Furniture all covered up? All the upstairs, ma'am, and I'll do the living room directly the guests leave after tea. Good. The Hewitts and Sinclairs are coming over for tea to say goodbye. And what about the Wallingfords? They'll try, but probably not. The Wallingfords won't make it for tea, but they may just show up a little bit later. Haven't you any letters to write or business to attend to? No, I have the whole afternoon free for packing. (laughs) You don't have to give that a thought, dear. All that's attended to. Everything that you'll need, it's all packed. Can't have you concerned with trivialities like that. You must keep your mind free for more important matters. Mm, yeah, that's very thoughtful of you, dear. You know, few men have wives like you. But that is nice of you, Herbert. One likes to have one little efforts appreciated, doesn't one? Of course, Hermione doesn't hear that line the way we hear that line. On the other hand, we don't necessarily hear lines like this the way Herbert hears them. Can't have you concerned with trivialities like that. You must keep your mind free for more important matters. And just in case the sarcasm escapes us... Oh, there is something. The man who does the garden will be here this afternoon. Will you talk to him about the hedge? We don't like the way he's been trimming it lately at all. Of course, if you have time. And so we move on to the tea party with their guests, the Sinclairs and the Hewitts. When you watch this scene, it feels like it's full of a lot of crosstalk and small talk that's hardly worth listening to and that you can barely follow. But if you close your eyes and listen to the scene, almost everything that's said is understandable. And you even learn little things like why Herbert is going to Los Angeles. Metallurgy, I believe. Something to do with metals. Anyway, Herbert's awfully good at it, I believe. Sure, must. See, with all these new jet planes, well, I I believe some of the metals get terribly hot, you know. It's a question of, uh, well, uh, alloys and stress and all that sort of thing, you know. Uh, No, I understand. Some of the work he did here attracted their attention, you know. But for the most part, we're not interested in any of this. And the reason why we're not interested is because Hitchcock's not interested. He focuses the camera on Herbert through almost this entire scene, no matter who else is speaking. So we get Herbert's reactions, Herbert's stress, Herbert's anticipation. We do get a couple of shots of Hermione, but from Herbert's point of view. Now, there's a talk of us staying longer, permanently, in fact. And of course, that's all very tentative. Don't worry. We shan't hear of any nonsense such as that, you may be sure. There's a couple of other interesting moments within all of this. The place you're going to is in California, isn't it? Yes, Los Angeles. Is that where you were before? Yes, but we were only there for a few weeks last trip. What's it like? Oh, large, casual, very disorganized. And Jack Seabrook points out that that is the opposite of his life with Hermione. You're not flying, Herbert, Hermione tells me. No, I don't like flying at all. It frightens me. (laughs) Fortunately, Hermione doesn't like it either. Oh, that is fortunate. Anyhow, we're taking the car. Oh, yes, of course. We already learned that Hermione's typewriter is in the car. Now we learn the car is taking the whole trip to Los Angeles with them. Or with him. No trains, no fuss, no rush, no bother. Doesn't Hermione arrange things beautifully? Oh, Don't you wish I were like that? No, not really. Not really, indeed. 
Maybe Herbert's male friends think about Hermione the way Herbert does. Here's John P. Hess from FilmmakerIQ.com on the Hitch 20 feature. And we get this tension building. We can see it. We can taste it. We know what's going to happen. We're just waiting, waiting. We're biding our time. We're biding our lip to see what happens. Herbert is feeling that tension, too. So much so that he doesn't notice, as the party breaks up, the three women getting together and Hermione revealing... As a matter of fact, I have a little surprise for Herbert, which will require our being here. So you can rely on it. I shall have him back for Christmas no matter what happens. Or as William C. Martell, author of Hitchcock Experiments in Terror, puts it on Hitch 20... People think that a plot twist is something that happens at the end of the story. Actually, a plot twist is something that's there all along in every frame of the film. But the audience doesn't see it because you, as a clever filmmaker, make sure they're distracted by something else. Now, we can't let those characters get out the door without first talking about the four actors who played the two couples. Mrs. and Major Sinclair were played by Lillian Kemple Cooper, billed as Lily Kemple Cooper here, and A.E. Gould Porter, later known as Arthur Gould Porter. Lillian Kemple Cooper was a member of the Kemple family of English actors. She was the daughter of actor Frank Kemple Cooper. Her younger brother Anthony and her older sister Violet were also actors. She was married three times, first to actor and writer Charles McKay, then to former World War I pilot and writer Louis Bernheimer, and finally to actor Guy Bates Post. She appeared in My Fair Lady, the suspicion episode Lord Arthur Seville's Crime, the 1936 remake of Three Live Ghosts. Hitchcock did the titles for the original silent version. And she may perhaps be best known as the British nanny in Gone with the Wind. Oh, good evening, Mr. Butler. Haven't I told you you'll never leave this child alone in the dark? If you pardon me, sir, children are often afraid of the dark, but they get over it. If you just let her scream for a night or Let her scream? Either you're a fool or the most inhuman woman I've ever seen. Well, of course, sir, if you want her to grow up nervous and cowardly. Cowardly? But it's a cowardly bone in her body. You're discharged. This is her only appearance in Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and Lillian Kemple Cooper died in 1977 at the age of 84. A.E. Gould Porter was born in England and came to the United States when he was in his 30s. His film and TV career spanned from 1942 to 1977, and he appeared in such shows as The Man from Uncle, The Wild Wild West, My Mother the Car, and Gomer Pyle. He's in two One Step Beyond episodes, The Secret and The Gift. He's in the Suspicion episode, Rainy Day, along with John Williams. And he's in the films Abbott and Costello Meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, A Double Life, National Velvet, The Invisible Man's Revenge, Random Harvest, Assault on a Queen, and Dr. Doolittle. He's probably best known as playing Captain Greer, in the Disney film Bedknobs and Broomsticks, and for a recurring role as Ravenswood the butler in the Beverly Hillbillies. But he also has a small role as Freddy the bookseller in Hitchcock's Torn Curtain. Do you have a book from Professor Armstrong? One moment. Freddy? Why didn't the professor come himself? Well, he's busy at the moment. I'm his assistant, Miss Sherman. I think we spoke on the phone. Oh, yes. Uh, will you come this way? Excuse us. 
Them religious books is a hell of a shambles, Magda. Thank you. How much is that? On account. When we charge it, see, Diners Club. Take good care of it, dear heart. It's the first edition, is that? Thank you. Who is this Professor Armstrong? I didn't hear you, love. Who is this Professor Armstrong? What do you got there? English Bibles. Oh, take him to the stockroom and pray for him. He is in 10 total episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. His next is I Killed the Count, Part 1, Episode 25 of Season 2, which also stars John Williams. And A.E. Gould Porter died in 1987, two days shy of his 82nd birthday. Gerald Hamer and Irene Tedrow play Mr. and Mrs. Hewitt. Gerald Hamer was born in Wales and appeared on the stage starting in 1916. He moved on to British film, but then came to the United States, where he first appeared in the Fred Astaire Ginger Rogers film, Swing Time. He was in the 1944 version of The Lodger as a milkman, and in the film Forever and a Day, the World War II mashup in which Hitchcock apparently lent a hand. Rotten Tomatoes says of him, he might be totally forgotten today, except that he has the distinction of playing one of the most sinister roles in any of the Basil Rathbone, Nigel Bruce, Sherlock Holmes movies. The part of Potts, Tanner, Ramsden in The Scarlet Claw. Nervous? Well, the thought of having your throat torn out by some monster isn't likely to make it very gay, Dr. Watson. Oh, no, indeed. Some of Mr. Journey's excellent wine will soon remedy that. Ray. Would you bring a bottle of this excellent wine for my friend here? Yes, monsieur. Mr. Potts, as a student of the occult, supposing you give me your theory of, of this murder. Mm. You like this wine? <laughs> oh, but Dr. Watson, I never drink anything stronger than milk. Teetotaler? No, hiccups. Every time I drink alcohol, I have hiccups. Mm. Sorry. He also appears in four other Basil Rathbone Sherlock Holmes films. Pursuit to Algiers, Sherlock Holmes Faces Death, Terror by Night, and Sherlock Holmes in Washington. He's in two total episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. His next and last is The Hands of Mr. Ottermole, episode 32 of season two. And Gerald Hamer died in 1972 at the age of 85. We already discussed Irene Tedrow when she played Mildred's sister Lucy back in episode four, Don't Come Back Alive. But we didn't give her a clip back then, so let's rectify that. Here she is in the Twilight Zone episode, The Lateness of the Hour. I'll give you a choice. Get rid of them, or I'll leave. You can't leave, Jaina, dear. Why, you simply can't leave. Why, what would happen to you? Who'd look after you? What would you do out there? She's in one more episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and one episode of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. Her next is The Hero, episode 29 of season 5. With their guests gone, Herbert and Hermione now say goodbye to Elsie, 
who promises to cover the furniture with sheets before she goes. Note that Hermione says, Goodbye, Elsie. No, we won't say goodbye. Just au revoir. It won't be long. Elsie still says, Yes, ma'am. Goodbye. And Herbert certainly says, Goodbye, Elsie. Have a good holiday. Hermione's micromanaging continues. Now, put on your brown tweeds. They're laid out on the bed for you. And be sure and take everything out of those pockets before you pack it. That's all you have to yes, do. Yes, yes, I will. And she and Herbert go up the stairs. The scene dissolves to Herbert coming down the stairs. He is in his tweed, and all of the furniture is covered. He pokes around to make sure that Elsie is gone. Elsie! Then he heads for the basement, and we get another shot of him going down some stairs. Once there, he picks up the lead pipe that he left in the alcove, and he puts it on a wooden box. Then he turns to face the stairs. Anyone coming down wouldn't see that pipe, but we do, because we are behind Herbert. Hermione! Hermione has made it down to the ground floor, but when Herbert asks her to come down into the cellar, she spots something she doesn't like about the way Elsie has covered up the chandelier, and she asks Herbert to come up first to help her with that. Uh, must it be done this minute? Of course, the first thing that's first is what Hermione wants to do, not what Herbert wants to do. And in spite of the fact that he is going to kill her, he acquiesces, and we get another long, lonely shot of Herbert going up some stairs. Would you get me the little ladder out of the kitchen closet? I want to change this dust cover. What's the matter with it? Well, it'll cover the sofa so much better than that little one in there. Will you get me the ladder, please? And, of course, he does, making sure it's nice and stable under the chandelier when he brings it back. He even offers to do the job, only to get another one of those little digs from Hermione. Could it be do it? No. Oh, no. I've had it done wrong once today already. It's much simpler to do it myself. Now, John P. Hess on Hitch 20 says... But she's also not evil, and that's what's interesting in how Hitchcock plays this. She's not an evil person. She's overbearing. She's a little dominating. But she's also sweet. She's also nice to him. She serves him his lunch. So she's not a completely despicable character. And that, of course, is one of the elements that makes this scene so morbidly humorous. Herbert is intending to murder Hermione, and yet he helps her out with this. He holds the ladder steady. He allows her to support herself by hanging onto his shoulder. He reaches over and grabs the new sheet to put up over the chandelier. When she says she's not very good at it... I'm not very good at this. No, no. He supports her by saying, no, no. As Jack Seabrook says, Hermione insists that she can do a better job than the maid did, but in fact her work is much sloppier. The irony of Herbert's helping her with this task is great, since he plans to murder her moments later. But how do we feel about that? Are we exasperated like Herbert is in these wonderful close-ups we get? Do we want him to murder her? Or are we hoping that something will happen here that will prevent him from murdering her? Instead, he stands there and helps her while she completes her job. Then she asks him to put the ladder back. When he objects that no one's going to be in the house while they're gone, she insists. The camera follows her into the living room as she takes the time to put the sheet on the couch. And when she returns, Herbert has indeed taken the ladder away. But now he wants her to come downstairs. The Hitch 20 narrator thinks we want the murder to occur. Even though the audience might not agree with the plans, Hitchcock was confident enough in his skill that the more he delayed the plans, 
the more we will want it. It's a big tease. He makes us want something that we know we shouldn't want, and that creates a nervous anticipation. So, do they go downstairs? Well, not so fast. Now will you come down, dear? Just a moment, dear. I want to check the windows. Will you help me, please? But Elsie locked them all. Yes, but Elsie was supposed to put the dust covers on properly. The only way to make certain is to do it oneself. Will you check the dining room? Very well, now. And Herbert does check the dining room window, making us wait some more. At last, they both go down to the basement, and we get another shot of Herbert and Hermione this time descending the stairs. He's so intent on what he's doing that he doesn't notice that she turns the dial on a pipe to shut off the water main. Well, I... Do you think... Do you think this is going to be deep enough? I don't think it makes a particle of difference. Herbert, look. Uh, take a better look, proper look. He wants her in a very certain spot so that he can hit her over the head and she'll fall into the grave. And when she stands elsewhere, he gets mad. First time we've seen him mad. Hermione clearly doesn't see him mad very often either because this seems to shock her. No, no, not from there. Herbert! No, 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 from here. See? When Hermione moves into the position Herbert wants, the camera loses interest in her, focuses solely on Herbert. So we never see her again. We just see Herbert's face as he stumbles through whatever he is saying. We get a close-up of his hand as it reaches for the pipe, and then we see his hand raise and lower the pipe in a killing blow that we know connects only because of the grisly sound effect we get and the music. Oh, and also because Hermione stops talking. I don't know, Herbert. I don't know anything about you. We never see Hermione's body. We just see Herbert looking down at her, his lip trembling. Then the scene fades out, and when it fades back in again, Herbert has completely filled in the hole. He's patting down the dirt with his shovel. The music is light and almost comedic as Herbert finishes his job and then gives a look at the grave, sort of half longing, A little bit of, I'm sorry I had to do this, which perhaps helps to keep him sympathetic. And then we watch him going up the basement stairs and again up the stairs to the second floor. The music becoming a little bit more serious as he goes and becoming quite serious when he gets to the upstairs bathroom and turns on the sink to wash the dirt off his hands and no water comes out. She, she turned it off. She turned it off the vein. As an audience, we're probably thinking, aha, we saw her turn that dial. This is the thing that's going to trip him up. He goes running down the stairs. We see him again going down the stairs to the ground floor and again, going down the stairs to the basement. As the pie lady puts it, he goes back to the cellar, turns the water main back on, while the music plays my favorite, oh no you didn't cue.
We get a close-up of the water coming out of the tap in the bathroom. Maybe this is what's going to trip him up. He comes back up the stairs again and is just in the recess to the basement so that he can't be seen from the front door. When the doorbell rings, it's the Wallingfords who couldn't make it to the tea party, and they walk right in. This is probably the best scene in an exceptional episode. Here's John P. Hess from Hitch 20 again. He's coming out of the basement. He's hiding in the stairwell when he hears his friends enter the front door. So we get this shot, this shot of Herbert in the foreground and the friends in the background. He's accomplished with a really deep depth of field or accomplished with a split diopter, which allows for the focusing of two different planes in a scene. So if we cut this thing, if we showed Herbert's reaction, then shot to the friends, then back to Herbert, if we created that cutting, we wouldn't have that same kind of tension because we're not forcing the audience to participate. With one shot, we're looking at Herbert, we're looking at the friends, we're looking back and forth. We become part, we're there. We are there in the moment and we are feeling the tension, the fear that Herbert is feeling, and that's accomplished with one single take. Or to put it another way, here's actor Benjamin Styrek from Hitch 20. One thing that I really liked about it was, even though it was really dark and twisted and the whole thing centered around him killing his wife, you kind of rooted for him, you know? It's like, I wanted him to get away with it, as sick as that sounds. We're all hoping he'll get away with it, as sick as that sounds. And we're all paralyzed with fear with Herbert as he hides in that recess, knowing that the Wallingfords could walk right down the hallway and spot him. And we're stuck with him as we listen to them and wonder if they're going to move farther into the house or not. Herbert! Hermione! Wherever can they be? Well, the car's there. Maybe they've popped around to Mrs. Little's. Well, we must see them. One of the shops, maybe. Something at the last minute. No, not Hermione. I see. Listen, isn't there someone taking a bath? This is one of the things I love about this scene. Ordinarily, when you have an unexpected twist, like Hermione turning the water off, that's a plot point that usually trips the murderer up. But really, in this case, it saves him, because Mr. Wallingford assumes that the sound of the water running is someone taking a bath, and Mrs. Wallingford doesn't want to intrude, if that's what's going on. Shall we shout? How about banging on the door? Don't. It might not be tactful. Well, there's no harm in a shout. No, dear. Let's come by on our way back. Hermione said they wouldn't be leaving before seven. They're dining on the road, you know. Well, that's so. All right. But I do want to have that last drink with old Herbert. He might be hurt. Let's hurry. We can be back by half past six. <laughs> so here we've been worrying about that water main since Hermione turned it off, and there was no reason to worry about it at all. Now, before we leave the house and venture across the ocean, let's look at three characters we will not see again. Mr. and Mrs. Wallingford and poor Hermione. Gavin Muir played Mr. Wallingford. He was born in Chicago. While his mother was American, his father was Scottish, and he was educated in England. He acted on Broadway through 1933, and he moved on from there to a film career that continued up until 1965. He usually played villains with British accents. You can see him in the One Step Beyond episode, Night of April 14th, Abbott and Costello Meet the Invisible Man, and three Sherlock Holmes films, Sherlock Holmes and the Voice of Terror, Sherlock Holmes Faces Death, and Sherlock Holmes in Washington. Oh, by the by, Mr. Lang, 
Thank you for your cablegram. I received it just before I left London. Cable? I sent no cable. About our reservations at the Hotel Metropole. Why, no. We thought you'd stay at the Embassy, of course. Look at that. Well, since some strange person has taken such an extraordinary interest in my welfare, I think I shall stay at the Hotel Metropole. He is in three total episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. His next is Miss Bracegirdle Does Her Duty, episode 18 of season three. And Gavin Muir died in 1972 at the age of 71. Catherine Warren plays Mrs. Wallingford, and she was born in Detroit. You can find her in All the King's Men, The Glenn Miller Story, Jailhouse Rock, The Cane Mutiny, and three episodes of Leave it to Beaver. Toy, have you gotten the bumps out of the headshot? I'm doing fine. Oh, dear. You better get that straightened out before your father gets home. Yes, Mom. I have my own problems. I'm having a tea party and the water's turned off. I can let you have three buckets, Mrs. Brown. Oh, aren't you a sweet boy? He's charging for it, Mom. She is also in three episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Her next is The Hidden Thing. Episode 34. And Catherine Warren died in 1965, five days after her 60th birthday. Isabel Elsom played Hermione. She was born Isabel Reed in England. IMDb calls her the epitome of opulent grand dame haughtiness. She started her career on stage in 1911, appeared in a number of films in the silent film era, and began performing on Broadway in 1926. Her best-known role on stage was again as a murder victim in Ladies in Retirement in 1939. When they made the film version in 1941, she played that role again. She met her first husband, director Maurice Elvey, when he cast her in his 1919 film, Quinnies. He directed her in eight more films before they divorced. Her second husband was actor Carl Harbord, and they were married from 1942 until his death in 1958. She is in The White Cliffs of Dover, The Unseen, Of Human Bondage, The Ghost in Mrs. Muir. Oh, poor Lucy, we've such bad news for you. I suppose it's all for the best, everything considered, don't you, Eva? And in my opinion, we're just in time. So perhaps our bad news is good news after all, and now we can all go home and live together and forget all this nonsense about living alone. What news is this? Your gold mine, Lucy. It's petered out. They've stopped paying dividends. It was in the Times this morning. The two Mrs. Carrolls, the Secret Garden, Monsieur Verdoux. Ah, yes, we called it our Sanssouci. Ah, she loved this room. In fact, she spent most of her time here. Very sunny. Yes, we love the sun. But some people don't like it shining in the bedroom. Oh, I do. Mm-hmm. Scorpio. I beg your pardon? Your astrological sign. Oh, no, Aries. Ah. Yes, of course. Sky and sun, a dreamer. It's in your eyes. Deep pools of desire that can never be fulfilled or understood. Very interesting. Love is a many splendored thing. The pleasure seekers, lust for life. I'm sorry, but did she say I... I disgusted her? Yes. Did she actually say that? Yes. Well, I'm sorry to her. Uh, I'll be going. Where are you staying? 
Would you like to spend the night here? Thank you, but Miss Kay leaves the house. At least let me take care of your hands. Take care of yourself, Vincent. How about your family? Good night. Good night, boy. Good night. My fair lady and the young Philadelphians. Fine boy. Anthony Judson Lawrence. No, Kate. I haven't been idle these past few months. I couldn't let what happened to my boy go without investigation. That is not my grandson. John Williams is also in that film. She is in four Jerry Lewis movies, Rockabye Baby, Who's Minding the Store, The Bellboy, and The Errand Boy. Tom, I maintain that in order to get the information that you want, we should get somebody that not only nobody knows, but someone that couldn't care less about our problems, or anybody else's for that matter. How do you mean? I mean that we need somebody who is so concerned with his own problems that he won't know that we literally want him to spy for us. And it should be somebody who doesn't care about money, who doesn't care how we spend ours or how much we have or how much anybody else has. Just where do you find this sort of someone? Frankly, Tom, I don't think you do. The person that we want probably doesn't exist. It just couldn't be anybody that stupid. Oh, I bet there is. She is also in the thriller episode, The Closed Cabinet, the One Step Beyond episode, Night of April 14th, along with Gavin Muir, and two suspense episodes, The Red Signal and Woman in Love. She, like Gerald Hamer, is in the World War II mashup Forever in a Day. Look, my children, there's our Jenny. I don't seem to remember giving her permission to come out this morning. She's really quite pretty, you know. She appears to have washed her face for the occasion. It's too bad we can't have a jubilee every day of the week. And she played the innkeeper in Alfred Hitchcock's film, The Paradine Case. Have I a sitting room? Oh, yes, sir. You mentioned it in your wire. Would you be wanting to see it? Yes, please. Would you like some cold fish and salad before you go to bed? Oh, no, thank you. But any chance of a whiskey and soda? Okie doke. Uh, your bedroom's number 17. I'll have your bag sent up. Thank you. Are you a detective? <laughs> no, why? Oh, I just wondered. Well, why do you ask? Have you had trouble here? Well, no, not exactly here, but, well, we don't like being in the Sunday papers. Haven't you heard about the big poisoning case? That was Colonel Paradine. He had Hindley off. Oh, mercy me, your fire's going out. Yes, I heard about that. This chimney won't draw. We found a dead owl in it last Sunday. Hey, that murder's been the talk of the place. It was Mrs. Paradine that did it, they say. Oh, that's better. The sticks were damp and the wind's in the wrong way. Did you know her? Nobody knew her. Oh, she'd ride over here once in a while on a black hunter. Pleasant enough, but she never spoke to no one. Did she always ride alone? Oh, that's got it. Yes. Now I've come to think of it, she always was alone. And now the poor Colonel's dead and the house is up to let. I heard it was. I. That's why I came, as a matter of fact. Oh, that's why you're here, Mr. Keene. I was wondering, are you going to see the house tomorrow? Yes, I think so. Well, would you mind going in a pony and trap? Our car's all booked up for tomorrow. It's only about eight miles. Fine, fine. Make it about ten o'clock. Okie doke. She is in two more episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and two episodes of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. Her next is The Three Dreams of Mr. Finlater, episode 30 of season 2. And Isabel Elsom died in 1981 at the age of 87. 
What has been a very claustrophobic show suddenly opens up as, without Hermione, Herbert's life becomes, as he said about Los Angeles, large, casual, very disorganized. The music starts out rather serious, but as we get shots of an ocean liner coming into New York City, the customs office, Herbert superimposed over shots of New York, Herbert superimposed in his car over shots of the countryside as he drives along eating a hot dog and enjoying himself. The music becomes like something out of a travelogue. You know the kind I mean. From Los Angeles Civic Center, high-speed freeways radiate in all directions, serving a city which is swiftly approaching the point, heaven forbid, where the number of motor vehicles will equal the total population. Modern shopping centers, scattered throughout the city, help to relieve downtown congestion. The travelogue continues as we get to Beverly Hills, and then we get a moment as the camera pans up the side of an apartment building where the superimposition is reversed. Rather than Herbert superimposed over scenery, now the building is superimposed over Herbert, who is at his typewriter. The shot soon switches to what is being written on the typewriter. We have been so rushed ever since we arrived in America that I have had no time to write before. Please forgive me. I found America very bewildering at first and am glad that we are finally settled in a place of our own. The traffic is quite alarming here. Everyone has a car of their own, even the maids. We are established in a charming flat and Herbert begins his work on Monday. They are already urging him to stay permanently, but we shall have none of that, of course. I must confess it is delightful here. But after all, it isn't home, is it? So never fear, we shall see you again by Christmas time. Love? Yeah. And Herbert, looking very pleased with himself, takes the page out of the typewriter. The next time I let the first shade of doubt creep in. He prepares to forge Hermione's signature when the doorbell buzzes. The man at the door is from the plant where Herbert is going to work. IMDB says this character's name is Mr. Hall, but I don't think his name is ever mentioned. I was just having some breakfast. Uh, can I get you something? No, thanks. Well, this is a pleasant place. Yes, isn't it? You, uh, <laughs> you always have beer for breakfast? No, no, only recently. I like it very much, though. It's just the thing. Nothing, I think, represents freedom from Hermione as much as having beer for breakfast. I say, are you sure you won't have something? Oh, no, thanks. Just the same. I'll have to get on back. Oh, you, uh, you had some mail came this morning. I brought it along. Oh, thank you. There are some for uh, Mrs. Carpenter, too. Is she going to join you? No, my wife and I separated recently. It was rather sudden. I suppose, actually, it's been coming on for quite a long time. Yes, you could say that. And some of our friends haven't heard about it yet. I really must write to them and let them know. Well, I'll, uh, I'll be getting along. Uh, oh, by the way, have you, uh, you made up your mind to stay over here with us? Well, I can tell you this. I've been giving it some very favorable thought. 
I must say I like it here. Oh, good. Well, I'll see you Monday morning, then. Your office is all ready for you. Yes, indeed. Uh, that'll be fine. I'll see you out. Oh, no bother. No, it's no bother at all. It's very decent of you to stop by. Not at all. If there's anything we can do, be sure and let us know. Thanks awfully. I think I have everything under control. Good. See you Monday, then. Yes, all right. Bye. Goodbye. Which is perhaps the point of his entire scheme. For him, not Hermione, to have everything under control. He starts reading his mail when a maid comes in. Good morning, Mr. Carpenter. Good morning. Well, I see you've certainly been unpacking. Don't worry, though. I'll get everything all straightened up before you know it. No, no, please don't move anything. I, I, it's all just exactly the way I want it. You might do the vacuuming and wash the dishes. That'll be fine. Don't you even want me to move this bath towel? Uh, oh, yes, the towel. I'm not sure why the maid is even there as a character, except perhaps to emphasize once again that Herbert is living the way he wants to live. As Jack Seabrook puts it, he is fulfilling his earlier description of America as disorganized. But that all becomes irrelevant in a hurry, because as soon as he says... Uh, oh, yes, a towel. He opens another bit of mail and says... Looks like a bill. It's all coming to a head. But before it does, let's take a look at the man that IMDb calls Mr. Hall and the maid. Ross Ford played the man. And Rotten Tomatoes says of him, Lightweight leading man Ross Ford joined the Warner Brothers contract stable in 1943. Ford briefly moved from Warner's to Columbia before setting his sights on TV work. He was starred in the feature-length pilot for Project Moonbase, which was diverted to theaters when a series failed to materialize. He then spent three years as Eliana Verdugo's boyfriend on the popular sitcom Meet Millie. He is in episodes of My Living Doll, The Adventures of Superman, and Silent Service. Well, you better enjoy these boys. This may be the last we get for the next two weeks. I figured another one a long time before two weeks is up. Charlie, you're a pessimist. <laughs> well, we have nailed the submarine early in the last couple of exercises. We'll get her on this one, too. This is his only Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearance and Ross Ford died in 1988 at the age of 65. Teresa Harris plays the maid, a role she unfortunately played far too often. She was born on New Year's Eve 1906 in Houston. Her parents were former sharecroppers from Louisiana. They moved to Southern California when she was 11. She studied at the UCLA Conservatory of Music and then joined the Lafayette Players, an African-American musical comedy theater troupe. Her film debut was in Joseph von Sternberg's Thunderbolt in 1929, in which she plays a performer at the Black Cat Cafe singing the song, Daddy, Won't You Please Come Home. In 
the 1930s, she mostly played maids. Two such actresses as Ginger Rogers, Betty Davis, Sylvia Sidney, Frances D., Myrna Loy, Jean Harlow, Thelma Todd, and Kay Francis. Her first credited role was opposite Barbara Stanwyck in Babyface, 1933. In that, her character Chico is Stanwyck's companion and her friend. And as the 10 Things You Should Know About Teresa Harris YouTube featurette says, they are as equal as one could hope to see in a picture of the time. In the 1940s, she was often paired up with Eddie Anderson, Rochester, from The Jack Benny Show. And she also became a favorite of Val Luton, who cast her in his horror films, Cat People, I Walked with a Zombie, Phantom Lady, and Strange Illusion. She made her last film appearance in The Gift of Love in 1958, and she later married a doctor and retired from acting. She once said, I never had the chance to rise above the role of maid in Hollywood movies. My color was against me, any way you looked at it. The fact that I was not hot stamped me either as uppity or relegated me to the eternal role of stooge or servant. My ambition is to be an actress. Hollywood had no parts for me. This is from the New York Times. For Lynn Nottage, the aha moment that led to, by the way, meet Vera Stark, her new play about race, sex, fame, and the dream and crushing reality of Hollywood, was unexpected. She was watching Babyface, a delectably sordid 1933 studio film about an ubermensch in silk stockings played by Barbara Stanwyck, who climbs to the top one bed at a time. But it wasn't the star who caught Ms. Nottage by surprise. It was the woman next to her, Teresa Harris, the African-American beauty with the honey voice and sly look, who was holding her own against Stanwyck and taking up precious screen space. This wasn't one of those nearly invisible black actresses who filled Hollywood movies in the years before the Civil Rights era, the woman at the edge of the screen announcing visitors and taking hats. Harris's character is a maid, but she's also Stanwyck's companion and something of a friend. Entranced by both the character and actress, Ms. Nottage started wondering about Harris, who she was and how she got to Hollywood, and the types of films she had been able to make in that notoriously inhospitable town. I was struck, she said of the performance, by how different it was from so many of the other representations of African-American women that I had seen from that period. Curious to know more, she set off on an intellectual investigation that became an aesthetic revelation as she searched for Harris's traces in the Hollywood histories of African Americans, in biographies, online, on YouTube, and DVD. She didn't find much, save for movies like The Flame of New Orleans, a period confection directed by René Clair, in which Harris somewhat reprises her role in Babyface, but with more lines and real glamour shots. With little to go on but the movies, Ms. Nottage began filling in the blanks with her imagination. The result is, by the way, Meet Vera Stark, an imaginary history that, like other of Ms. Nottage's plays, weaves the personal with the political. In 1974, Teresa Harris was inducted into the Black Filmmakers Hall of Fame because, despite going uncredited in most of her films, she was well known to black audiences of the era. Some black theaters would feature her name on the marquee when her films were shown, rather than the names of the film's leading actors. This is her only appearance in Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Teresa Harris died in 1985 at the age of 78. After Teresa removes the bath towel and leaves the screen not to be seen again, Herbert looks at the bill. Houghton Sun Builders Decorated. 
Madam, receipt your kind acceptance. Estimate below working almost immediately. As per your request, so as to have it finished for Christmas. He turns to the second page and does not read this part aloud. Instead, we get a close-up of the bill, but not right away. First, we get what Donald Spoto calls the stare of madness, the gaze of one immobilized within the prison of his own flesh or sin or emotional constriction. What Peter Ackroyd calls the quintessential Hitchcock visage, too traumatized to be able to react, stripped of all cultural reference, a bare blank stare. Then we see the bill, and it says, to be rendered, to excavating cellar floor to a depth of three feet, laying concrete, suitably relining walls for use as wine cellar, 78 pounds. The camera moves in on that, and then it gets all carried away. The screen goes dark except for the line, to excavating cellar floor. It moves in so tight, it has to pan to show it all. And to me, this is the one overindulgence in an otherwise perfect episode. But we can live with it. We move back to a close-up shot of John Williams, still looking down at the bill. His stare of madness has turned into a stare of resignation. Back for Christmas. She said I'd be back for Christmas. John Collier's short story is only five pages long in my book club edition of Fancies and Good Nights. In the story, Herbert is a doctor who has been contracted to lecture in the United States for three months. And the story begins with the tea party and the farewells, Hermione assuring their friends that they will be back for Christmas. So there's no grave digging in the basement to open the story, and therefore no clue that Herbert is going to murder Hermione. As Jack Seabrook says, in the story, Herbert's murder of Hermione comes as an unexpected surprise. In the TV show, it is obvious from the first scenes what he plans to do. Of course, it all happens very quickly, seeing as we only have five pages. Only with no grave in the basement, Herbert in the story uses the bathtub. Who in the world, said the doctor, has dropped a gold chain down the bathtub drain? Nobody has, of course, said Hermione. Nobody wears such a thing. Then what is it doing there, said the doctor. Take this flashlight. If you lean right over, you can see it shining deep down. Some Woolworth's bangle off one of the maids, said Hermione. It can be nothing else. However, she took the flashlight and leaned over, squinting into the drain. The doctor, raising a short length of lead pipe, struck two or three times with great force and precision, and tilting the body by the knees, tumbled it into the tub. After Herbert commits the deed, Collier writes, he stood looking at her for a very long time, thinking of absolutely nothing at all. Then he saw how much blood there was, and his mind began to move again. 
with that, he tries to turn on the bathtub and finds out that Hermione has turned off the water. He goes down to the cellar to turn on the water, and when he comes back up, the Wallingfords show up at the door. Only in this case, he is, as Herbert himself thinks to himself, all naked and blood and coal dust. I'm done. I'm through. I can't do it. But, of course, the Wallingfords think someone's taking a bath, and they go away. Now, we may not have seen a grave in the cellar, but that doesn't mean Herbert isn't digging a hole that he tells Hermione is for a wine cellar. Only in this case, things are a little bit more gruesome. Herbert, as a doctor, cuts Hermione up. He came down again, clad in his bath gown, carrying parcel after parcel of toweling or newspaper neatly secured with safety pins. These he packed carefully into the narrow, deep hole he had made in the corner of the cellar, shoveled in the soil, spread coal dust over all, satisfied himself that everything was in order, and went upstairs again. He then thoroughly cleansed the bath and himself and the bath again, dressed and took his wife's clothing and his bath gown to the incinerator. And Herbert in the story has something that Herbert in the episode does not, another woman. Marion was waiting in Chicago. She already believed him to be a widower. The lecture people could be put off with a word. He had nothing to do but establish himself in some thriving out-of-the-way town in America, and he was safe forever. There were Hermione's clothes, of course, in the suitcases. They could be disposed of through the porthole. Thank heaven she wrote her letters on the typewriter. A little thing like handwriting might have prevented everything. But there you are, he said. She was up-to-date, efficient, all along the line. Managed everything. Managed herself to death, damn her. There's no reason to get excited, he thought. I'll write a few letters for her, then fewer and fewer. Write myself, always expecting to get back, never quite able to. Keep the house one year, then another, then another. They'll get used to it. Might even come back alone in a year or two and clear it up properly. Nothing easier. But not for Christmas. Herbert travels to New York, receives a pack of letters, one of which is from Paul Holt and Sons. And that is what finishes the story. There's no punchline of, she said I'd be back for Christmas. Collier doesn't find it necessary. He just gives us the letter to excavating, building up, suitably lining one sunken wine bin in cellar as indicated, using best materials, making good, etc. 18 pounds. Now, the story first appears in 1939, and by 1943, it makes its way to the Suspense radio program. Herbert is Hubert here, and is, strangely enough, played by Peter Lorre. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride one with Hey, yes, Marie. What on earth are you doing down here in the cellar? Oh, just doing a little digging. And why, may I ask, have you chosen this day of all days to dig up the cellar floor? Oh, I thought because the weather has been so damp, this would be a good time to plant that little <laughs> devil's garden I told you about. Having Hubert singing Jingle Bells is sort of a nice touch. But, you know, Christmas is still several months away. That's the whole point. Unless, of course, you air it on December 23rd as Suspense did in 1943. In any event, in this version, Hubert is a botanist, and they take great pains to explain Peter Lorre's accent by saying that he is Swiss. Since it's 1943, in the middle of World War II, they can't really have him be German. Here's this version's tip-off of the twist at the end. Nicely done, I think. 
I've been making the plans in this house for 20 years. And mm. if there's any digging to be done, I'll manage that as well. You understand, Hubert? Yes, Hermione. Good. So in town, Hubert strikes up a relationship with a shopkeeper who thinks that he's a widower. She, like the character in Collier's story, is named Marion. She's just a mention in Collier's story. We get to see the budding relationship here, a relationship that moves at light speed, because it sure seems like it's the same day that Hubert gets home and calls Marion. No, no, darling, no, nothing is wrong. Oh, my plans are the same, uh, unless, unless you have changed. No? We'll meet in New York, then, and be married there. Oh, I'll explain to you why later. You just have to trust me. The murder setup is the same as the short story. Uh, just look, who in the world do you suppose dropped a gold chain down the bathtub drain? Nobody has, of course. Nobody wears such a thing. Then what is it doing in here? I don't see anything. Well, look. I'll hold this flashlight here for you. If you if you lean right over, you can see it shining. It's deep down. Except in this case, he strangles her rather than hitting her over the head with a lead pipe. And they have a long conversation about it before he actually does the deed. Take your hands off my neck! I will, Hermione. Just as soon as I've finished the arrangements for my trip to America. What are you talking about? You thought you were the only one who could plan things, didn't you? Didn't you, Hermione, huh? Oh. Well, I've been making some plans of my own this past week. In exactly two minutes and 16 seconds, you'll be dead. You see? You see, I planned it very accurately. You'll never get away with it. Finally, of course, Herbert meets Marion in New York, and he gets the letter. And it wouldn't be a Peter Lorre episode without a little Peter Lorre freakout. Means, means that Hermione was right. I will be back for Christmas. I will be back for Christmas. I will back for Christmas. Back for Christmas. Yes, Hermione. The story shows up in radio again on Escape, once again around Christmas time, December 24th, 1947. Yes, my dear. What on earth are you doing down here in the cellar? Why, just a little digging. And why, may I ask, have you chosen this day of all days to dig up the cellar floor? Why, I thought as the weather has been so damp, this would be an excellent time to plant my devil's garden. If that sounds familiar, it's because the escape script is the same as the suspense script, except that Hubert is now once again Herbert, and since Peter Lorre isn't playing the part, they don't have to worry about all of that Swiss and German accent stuff. Herbert is played here by Paul Fries, known as the Man of a Thousand Voices. There's one other change. This version realizes that having Marion agree to go to New York and get married on the same day that she starts any sort of relationship with Herbert is a little ridiculous. So this is inserted. We both went about our respective engagements as the days passed. I spent all the time I could with Marion, and finally she consented. There's not much more to say, but I did want to highlight a few things that I didn't highlight in the earlier version. First, we get this moment of Hermione on the phone, pretty much laying out what the ending is going to be. Hello? 
Is this Paul Holt and Sons? Mrs. Herbert Carpenter here. Did you receive my letter? Oh, good. Now remember, we'll be back for Christmas, and I want the job done without fail. What's that? Oh, no, I'm sure he doesn't suspect anything. Send the bill to me in New York as I instructed you. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And second, there's this nice moment on the ship going across to New York where Herbert sends a telegram, but the message gets a little messed up. For a moment, I had the feeling that Hermione had been leaning over my shoulder again, correcting what I'd written, as she always did. I had written a radiogram to Professor Hewitt and his wife. Haven't been out of my cabin the whole beastly trip. Herbert, well, we now doubt we will be back for Christmas. The copy read, we no doubt will be back for Christmas. Exactly what Hermione would have written. And in the conclusion, Paul Fries is much more subdued than Peter Lorre. What does it mean, Herbert? It means that Hermione was right. I will be back for Christmas. The story appears again on Suspense on December 23rd, 1948. It is again the same script as the previous two, but there's one strange difference. First of all, the title of the episode, as introduced by our new friend Paul Fries. Radio's outstanding theater of thrills. Starring tonight, Mr. Herbert Marshall in Anton Leder's production of John Collier's Holiday Story. Yes, that's right. Christmas is banished from this episode. So you get moments like... You will have to do better than this when I plan the trip home, or we'll never in the world be back here for the holidays. And the big finish, in which Herbert Marshall, now playing Wilfred, gives us his best Peter Lorre conclusion. Well, what does it mean, Wilfred? It means that Hermione was right. I will be back for the holidays. Back for the holidays. Back for the holidays! Back for the holidays! Back for the holidays! Now, I have no idea why the title was changed, why Christmas was banished, but seeing as it is 1948, I suspect it has more to do with not wanting to offend people who are about to celebrate Christmas, rather than being all-inclusive on the holidays. The next version of this story appears in Crime Suspense Stories number 22, cover dated April-May 1954 and published by EC Comics. JacksAddict.com calls the cover, illustrated by Johnny Craig, the most infamous comic book cover of all time. The centerpiece of the Senate Committee to Investigate Juvenile Delinquency, the cover of Crime Suspense Stories number 22, became the focal point of Senator Estes Kefauver's questioning of EC Comics publisher William Gaines. Here is your May issue. This seems to be a man with a bloody axe holding a woman's head up, which has been severed from her body. Do you think that's in good taste? asked Kefauver. Yes, sir, I do, for the cover of a horror comic. Cover in bad taste, for example, might be defined as holding the head a little higher so that blood could be seen dripping from it, and moving the body over a little further so that the neck of the body could be seen to be bloody, replied Gaines. You've got blood coming out of her mouth. A little. Later that year, German-American psychiatrist Frederick Wortham published Seduction of the Innocent, a book that warned that comic books were a negative form of popular literature and a serious cause of juvenile delinquency. While being a minor success, the book became better known for helping galvanize the campaign for comic book censorship. In September of 1954, 
the Comics Magazine Association of America, CMAA, was formed. A body within the CMAA, the Comics Code Authority, CCA, was then voluntarily established by comic publishers. This code was enacted to allow publishers to self-regulate their titles and avoid government censorship. Although the CCA had no official control over the publisher's content, most distributors refused to sell comics that did not carry the CCA seal. So publishers had to make a choice, either censor their work or be blacklisted from all major distribution and sales agencies. This new code not only banned violent images, but even violent words and concepts. It also mandated that criminal action in these comics must always be punished. The CCA helped to destroy most of the crime and horror comics of the day and ushered in a watered-down era of superhero comics. Our story is the basis for this cover. Illustrated by Reed Crandall, it is entitled In Each and Every Package. And in the story, Norman kills Bertha and cuts her up, burying her piece by piece in the backyard of his home in Little Falls, Ohio. He goes to New York where he meets up with Sally, who has had plastic surgery to look like Bertha. But Sally has a more trim body. Sally was an actress, and she studied Bertha. They plan to spend a long time in New York, then return and say that Bertha has lost weight. But they attend a new game show in New York called Treasure Hunt and have to give their home address before they get their tickets. They then get called from the audience to be contestants, and they win. That's when they find out why they had to give their address. The winner gets $3,000 that the show buries in their backyard. A little over nine months after the Hitchcock episode, Back for Christmas returns to suspense on December 23, 1956. Herbert Marshall stars again, but this time we have a different script, though it clearly riffs off of the previous ones. Now we're back to the short story's wine bin, and we have an interesting follow-up to something that appeared in all the previous episodes that I haven't mentioned. When Herbert talks to Marion on the phone, Hermione catches him at it and hears him say that he will meet someone in New York. Herbert lies and says he's talking to his friend Freddie, but just then Freddie shows up at the door. Hermione mentions that Freddie is going to meet them in New York, and Freddie denies it. Herbert says something along the lines of, Oh, okay, Freddie, don't worry. You don't have to cover up for me. And it gets sort of dropped. Not here, however. And it ends in sort of an interesting way, as Herbert, to some extent, has to fess up. And Hermione, to some extent, reveals her plans. I've phoned. Yes. Just a few minutes before you arrived. But I couldn't have. I, I've been out for a drive all the afternoon. Oh, come, come, Freddie. You may as well own up. <laughs> I'll say, look here, old chap. I don't know what you're trying to... You see? You see? Herbert can't even lie well. He's red as a beetroot. <laughs> Aren't you ashamed of yourself, Herbert, stringing poor Hermione along like that? Well, I suppose the game is up. I... It, um... Uh, it wasn't Freddie I was talking to, Hermione. Well, I don't see how it could have been. No. I was, uh... Well, 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 it was about a little surprise I was planning for you. How sweet. And I have a surprise for you, too, Herbert, when I bring you back for Christmas. And in the conclusion, this time around, Herbert wears his Paul Frees hat, or even perhaps his John Williams hat, rather than his Peter Lorre hat. What does it mean, Herbert? It means that Hermione was right. I will be back for Christmas. There is one more adaptation of this story, this time in 1980, on Roald Dahl's Tales of the Unexpected. 
John Collier, who wrote this story, is surely one of the wittiest and most subtle writers of our time. He has produced a multitude of short stories, three novels, and many fine film scripts. When Collier writes fiction, he is totally outrageous. Consider, for example, a novel called His Monkey Wife, which is all about a female chimpanzee who falls in love with and eventually marries an undistinguished colonial schoolmaster. If that isn't outrageous, I don't know what is. Here, then, is another equally outrageous Collier story. In this version, Herbert is now James. He's played by Richard Johnson, and he's a doctor again. He also has a bit of a roving eye, which Hermione, played by Cyan Phillips, calls him on. Oh, for God's sake, grow up! I'm a big boy now, Mummy. You can't set eyes on a young girl without having to show me that you can get her. Well, all right then, get one. One of your adoring young nurses, maybe, and I hope you're more used to her than you are to me. James uses the old gold chain in the bathtub drain trick. Unless my eyesight's deceiving me, there's a gold chain down that drain. Can't be. I haven't got a gold chain. Oh, unless you've had someone here, of course. Some tarty little nurse who needed a bath. Oh, really? Seriously, Hermione? Come and look! Oh! There. There. hits her over the head with his flashlight. There's actually very little dialogue the rest of the way. As James drugs her, pulls up bricks on the patio, reveals a hole he dug before, carves her up in the tub, puts her in plastic bags bit by bit, carries baskets of plastic bags down the stairs. They look like Thanksgiving turkeys still in their wrapping. Pours dirt on top and cement over that and puts the bricks back. He burns a smock and gloves he was wearing, cleans up the bathroom, showers, and flies to Los Angeles. And then we get the conclusion. Hello? Hello, James. Eleanor, darling. You got my message? Oh, how are you? <laughs> I was scared to death I'd miss you. You're in Los Angeles. Yes, we've done New York, Chicago, Philadelphia. Now I'm here at last. Oh, I didn't know exactly uh, when. Listen, Eleanor, I've got some great news. She's left me. She's gone. Left you? Where? Oh, quite suddenly. What do you mean, James? Oh, hold on a minute. Here, come in. Oh, uh, put it in the bedroom, will you? So what time are you arriving? Not till 9.30. Oh, that means a late dinner, I suppose. Oh, it doesn't matter. Well, I suppose I'll survive. Oh, thanks very much. I'll survive till then. <laughs> you usually do. Yes. What are you going to do? What do you mean, what am I going to do? I'm going to build a glass house, a range of glass houses. Settle down. You don't mean it. Yes, I'm going to give up being a doctor. <laughs> I'm fed up with transplanting bits of people who are dead to people who ought to be. I just don't <laughs> believe you, James. What about the hospital? Uh, uh, hold on a minute, sir. Just a minute, darling. Dear Madam, thank you for your letter of Friday the 4th of March accepting our estimate and for the house keys you enclosed. 
which will be starting work on site immediately in order to complete my Christmas as promised. We confirm that the work involved is as detailed before the director supplying and erecting aluminium greenhouse as shown on enclosed drawings to clearing existing conservatory, moving shelves, lifting old flooring, digging up foundations, and laying new floor. I think this is an excellent version of Back for Christmas, but I don't think it's as good as the Hitchcock episode. That is mostly thanks to John Williams' performance and to Alfred Hitchcock's direction. I'm not the only one enamored of this episode. The Incredible Suit at theincrediblesuit.blogspot.com ranks every Hitchcock-directed episode, and it ranks Back for Christmas as number one, saying, Boasting a loveless marriage? a long-planned murder, genuine comedy suspense, and a lip-smacking twist. This episode is the first Hitchcock-directed story in the series to actually feel like a mini-Hitchcock film. And the pie lady gives this episode an A++++ and wonders if this episode was inspired by the infamous Dr. Crippen. Here's Wikipedia. After a party at their home on the 31st of January, 1910, Cora disappeared. Holly Crippen claimed that she had returned to the United States and later added that she had died and had been cremated in California. Meanwhile, his lover, Ethel Leneve Neve, moved into Hilldrop Crescent and began openly wearing Cora's clothes and jewelry. Police first heard of Cora's disappearance from her friend, the strong woman Kate Williams, better known as Volcana, but began to take the matter more seriously when asked to investigate by a personal friend of Scotland Yard Superintendent Frank Froist, John Nash, and his entertainer wife, Lil Hawthorne. The house was searched, but nothing was found, and Crippen was interviewed by Chief Inspector Walter Dew. Crippen admitted that he had fabricated the story about his wife having died and explained that he had made it up in order to avoid any personal embarrassment because she had in fact left him and fled to America with one of her lovers, a music hall actor named Bruce Miller. After the interview and a quick search of the house, Dew was satisfied with Crippen's story. However, Crippen and Leneve did not know this and fled in panic to Brussels, where they spent the night at a hotel. The following day, they went to Antwerp and boarded the Canadian Pacific liner SS Montrose for Canada. Their disappearance led the police at Scotland Yard to perform another three searches of the house. During the fourth and final search, they found the torso of a human body buried under the brick floor of the basement. Meanwhile, Crippen and Leneve were crossing the Atlantic on Montrose, with Leneve disguised as a boy. Captain Henry George Kendall recognized the fugitives, and just before steaming beyond the range of his shipboard transmitter, had telegraphist Lawrence Ernest Hughes send a wireless telegram to the British authorities. Have strong suspicions that Crippen, London cellar murderer, and accomplice are among saloon passengers. Mustache taken off, growing beard, accomplice dressed as boy. Manner and build, undoubtedly a girl. Crippen is arrested when he arrives in Canada, tried and convicted, and hung before the year of 1910 is out. And now, because this is a Hitchcock-directed episode, 
I'd like to bring in Amy Cantu, this time via Zoom, since we're both staying at home. Hi, Amy. How are you doing? How's it going in this brave new world? It's going pretty well, Al. Good to see you, or hear you, I guess. My son and I were talking about all the movies that are going to be made out of this pandemic. They're all going to have some hero that discovers the uh, antidote or vaccine and It'll probably be The Rock or somebody like that. <laughs> Save the day. But there's going to be all kinds of movies about this. I think some of the most interesting ones will be of people going crazy, locked in their small spaces. And that yeah. would be a good Hitchcock. Yeah. He, he, he's good at that, at the small spaces and going crazy. So. Yeah, that's yeah, true. What does Norman Bates say? We all go a little crazy sometimes. There you go. See? Yeah. Okay, well, let's get started. Okay. So what did you think of Back for Christmas? Well, I'll be honest with you. I didn't think it was one of his best. My main problem is that I knew what was going to happen. I completely knew the ending when his wife said, oh, I've got a big surprise for him that he doesn't know about that's going to cause us to come back here. When she says that to the neighbors when they're having the party. I yeah. completely knew then what the story was. It didn't make other parts of it less interesting or less suspenseful, but the overall plot, I knew how it was going to end, and it, it kind of wrecked it for me. So that's my first thought. Anyway, what'd you think? Oh, I love it. I actually think it's his best one of this first season. You're kidding. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> And I'm not sure if I would have figured it out because I saw it long ago. You're right that he does give hints along the way. But what I love about it is just what Hitchcock does as a director in it. Okay, tell me what you loved about it. Because I have like the opposite view. Really? Here. Oh, well, I want to hear that. Okay, well, you tell me what you loved about it because maybe I should see it more than once. Well... First of all, I love the way it opens. In the John Collier story, it's a surprise that Herbert murders his wife. This, you know it from the beginning. And you know it from the beginning because of what Hitchcock does with his camera, not because of necessarily anything that's said. He's telling you in like the first minute, this guy's going to murder his wife without anybody in the cast actually saying anything like that at all. So I love the juxtaposition between what the camera is doing and what the actors are doing. Okay, but I want to break in right there because this is exactly what I don't like because the, almost in the very next moment, he then cuts to that piece of paper that shows the general size of his wife, you know, the five foot four inches. Yes. And it's so obvious. It's too obvious. And he does this at the end too, and I'll get there. Why did he feel he needed to do that? What you just said would have been enough. I think I would have liked it better if I hadn't known. Although, come on, I mean, it looks like a grave. It, it does, and you, you, you already know it, it looks like a grave, and it's going to happen. I mean, I kind of appreciated that, but then did he have to do that extra step and make sure we understood that it was being measured specifically for the wife? Well, that is a good point. And I know what you're referring to when you talk about the end, too. The bit in the end is, I think, my biggest complaint. But you're right. We don't really need the, oh, five foot four, oh, five foot six, a uh, little space will do, whatever he says. If one of the great things about Hitchcock is the surprise twist at the end, I saw it coming and then he hammers it home. And it's like, I don't yeah, know. I agree anyway, with that. The way that you get the line that's then like highlighted, highlighted. with the black yeah. all around it. 
and then the and camera pans it. Get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's that was all really unnecessary. Yeah. But within all that, I think there's some really wonderful stuff. As I said in the story, you don't know he's going to kill his wife. But what I think what makes this episode work is that you do know. And then I think to a great extent, partly because we tend to identify with whoever the main character is in a story anyway, but partly because we've been put in Herbert's place, really. We've seen things from his point of view and so on. And partly because John Williams is so debonair, we're actually on his side. And so then it becomes a matter of when is this going to happen? Is this going to happen? And it all gets pushed off and pushed off and pushed off because his wife, who is really not that bad, runs the household and insists, for instance, that he come up and help her with the chandelier when he just tried to kill her. Right, which is a great moment, actually. I did appreciate it because you're kind of wondering while she's standing precariously on that ladder if he's going to push it over. Right. You know, if he's going to change his plan and then kill her right then, you're wondering right then if she's just pushing him to the limit and he's going to just do away with her on that ladder. It's a good moment, I admit yeah. it. And yeah. then he asked her, she asked him to go and fix the windows and he's getting so irritated because he just wants to get on with this killing. <laughs> it but is he pretty fixes funny. the window. <laughs> You know, I think, honestly, what my problem was, you'd mentioned that the actor Williams is so debonair. I think part of it is that I was wanting a creepier or mousier or quieter sort of person that you weren't expecting to do this, and then suddenly he does it. But that would be more in keeping with the, you didn't know he was going to kill her until he does. And then that's the upsetting thing. But you're right. With this, it's almost a comedic element. Yeah. I think that my initial reaction was that that detracts from the suspense. But what you're saying is it kind of makes it more fun. Is that what you're saying? Oh, yeah. I think it's very definitely yeah. a comedy episode. Yeah. It, it's black humor, but, you know, it, I think there are parts of it that are quite funny. Yeah. And I do think, to me, what John Williams' character is, I mean, as I said, his wife isn't that bad. And he's not necessarily all that henpecked. And he's not, as you said, seeming to be like, some sort of seedy type. So it's really just a matter of he doesn't want to put up with it anymore. <laughs> and yet he continues to put right. up with it you know, all the way funny. to the point where he kills her. So, no, that is kind of funny. And it reminds me actually of how you would see in like the old Three Stooges shorts. They're, they go to work on some woman's house and she's ordering them around and she's comedic in that way. And she just can't stop being her officious ridiculous self yeah 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 it makes you like him a little bit more that he just wants his freedom and his beer for breakfast you know (laughs) the beer for breakfast (laughs) oh to me the best scene in the entire thing is the whole sequence after he's killed her and he goes upstairs to wash up and she has turned the water off which of course she has because that's the kind of person she is Right. And then he has to go down and turn the water back on, and then he gets stuck as his friends come in the house. Yes. And it's wonderfully filmed, and it's this wonderful, suspenseful moment. As you know, All they have to do is walk down the hall, and they'll spot him. Right. And it has one of those situations where, with the water running, you think, this is how he's going to get caught. But in fact, the water actually saves him, because they yes. say, right. oh, 
someone's taking a bath. <laughs> and the man actually <laughs> says, well, maybe we should go and knock on the door. And the, the woman says, no, 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 let's not bother them. So the water actually saves them or right. else they might have come wandering into the house. And I think that whole right. thing is just brilliant. Yeah. Well, I will say another thing. It was fun because I was watching it with my husband. And at the end, when he's in his hotel room, and he gets the two visitors. The first is the colleague from his business. And then the second one is the maid, right? Yeah. Both times, my husband goes, here's the detective. <laughs> and a detective never came. We never had that moment. Each time I said, no, no. I guess I didn't know if it was going to be a letter or whatever. But I figured he was going to find out about it and then know the way he did rather than a detective coming and hauling him off. You know, like we've discovered a body, you know. I didn't figure that was going to happen, but it was funny because both of those entrances, you're like, oh, are they going to walk over and read the letter that he's typing? You know, I'm kind of wondering, are they going to discover it then? So I liked that. Yeah, Hitchcock's playing with us through the whole thing. You're right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's having fun. Well, that's real interesting to hear the Here Comes the Detective because those two appearances, I think, are very strange. You need the first guy because he brings the letter. But right. I have no idea why you have a maid come in, unless just to demonstrate that he's being messy the way he'd always wanted to be. But all I was thinking was, dude, don't leave that letter out that you're typing up. She's going to find something. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the things, though, again, being just too obvious when they have the party, the camera is always on him and how he's reacting to all the things people are saying. And you can barely make out the conversation and you almost don't even see the friends because the camera's so focused on his face and they're all talking over each other and they're jabbering about whatnot. And the whole time he sort of has a look on his face like nobody knows what I'm about to do. You know, I'm, I'm about to, we're going to be gone a lot longer than you think. You know, there's sort of that going on. But I sort of wish, and now I can't remember, does he overhear it all or just a little bit when she says that to the neighbor? Well, I have a big surprise for him for Christmas, which is going to bring us back home. Does he hear that at all? No, I don't think he hears that at all. I don't think he hears it at all. I wish she had left the phrase off, that's going to bring us back here. If she had just said, I've got a big surprise for him for Christmas, maybe I wouldn't have caught on. But that was the exact moment I'm like, oh, she's going to have somebody dig up the cellar. That's the surprise. And then they're going to find her. I knew it right then. And I don't, I don't want to know. I like being played with, but yeah. I would have liked that to have been a bit more of a surprise. That's okay. my only complaint. All right. Well, that's interesting because I've sort of felt like, well, he plays fair with you. You know, it's not a big surprise. There are hints, but it sounds like the hints are too obvious. It's like at the end, he, you know, when you were saying, when he does the big highlight of the letter. Yeah digging up to three feet you're like <laughs> i didn't need that we no. yeah that's really to me that's, that's not more of a surprise yeah yeah but yeah you're right early on when she's first down there in the cellar that first scene she says something to him along the lines of i don't think it's necessary for you to do this and it sounds right. like her just being domineering but i think right at the start you're sort of getting a hint that he doesn't have to do this because she's going to have it done yeah. Maybe they should have left it at that and not made it quite so obvious. The other thing that's kind of funny that I remember too, I don't know if you got the impression, but that whole montage when he's traveling is pretty cheesy. It's very cheesy. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
it's really cheesy. He sort of has that look on, oh, I'm experiencing the city here. And they've got the back, the fake background and everything. It was pretty cheesy. Now, maybe I'm giving Hitchcock too much credit, but to me, you have this situation where everything is in this one house to begin with. It's all very claustrophobic. And the house is run by his wife. He actually bothers to show us her taking that sheet and covering the couch, things like this. You know, it's all very to her liking and it's all very claustrophobic. And then once he gets out of there, it all opens up. All of a sudden, wow, we're like in New York Harbor with the ship. And then here he is in New York and he's traveling the country and he's eating a hot dog and the vista has opened up and there's no discipline and he can do what he wants and he can have beer for breakfast. And there's this great contrast to that. Well, then that actually brings in why maybe they introduced the maid again, because, uh uh-oh, here's somebody coming into your environment in your small space who's going to try to clean it up and organize it again. And you're in trouble again. You know, it was irritating him because I think the maid was reminding him of what he had tried to get rid of in a female dominating, cleaning up my space kind of way. Yeah, that's good. I was thinking of it the other way. I was thinking that it just sort of represented that he was allowed to be messy. I think you're right, that she represents something that he tried to get away from. And she she sort of goes into another room and you never see her again. She doesn't yeah. leave the place. She just heads into another room. When she leaves, you then get the letter. So you're right. She represents this restoration of what's going to come with him being dragged back. And yeah. Right. And because for a couple of moments there, she was trying to, well, do you want me to put this away or clean this up? Do you want me to move your towel? And he's just like, oh, all right. Yeah, I guess the towel. Get out of my space. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny because the thing you like is that there isn't another woman. There isn't really this deep psychology. It's almost funny that he just wants to be rid of this annoyance. Yeah. And I think I was originally wanting there to be more of, it seemed anticlimactic because there wasn't more of a motive or more of a creepy, you know, honestly, I just saw the other night for the second time in my life. And I think the last, the movie seven Ah, okay. Did you ever see that? I did. Yeah, and so, I mean, that has a very surprise twist at the end, if you know what I mean. But I think that was just the the contrast. This felt so light and so silly and so not surprise twist at the end that I was almost disappointed. Okay. And I think it's because of the comparison. Yeah. But as for this, if you pare this down to its story, it's extremely simple. So it's really what Hitchcock does with it to me. And I just right. think everything he's done with it is just really brilliant. So Yeah, it's fun. It's just, wow. So you think that's better than than all the other ones up to this point? I do, that's, yeah. That's your favorite? It's my favorite of, of the four that he's directed, yeah. Wow. No, because I, I would say I like the first, and then I forgot the title of the one with Joseph Cotton. What What is that called? Breakdown. Breakdown. I think that's amazing. It is. I think all four that he directed are really terrific. Yeah. But this one just feels like more of a really, a, a really Hitchcockian directing job. Yeah, I think you're right. I think I was expecting more ugliness, brutality, surprise and this was a little bit it was just more fun 
Yeah. And the actor as well. He was the right guy if that's what you want. You know, he's definitely the right actor for that. He's certainly no Kevin Spacey, let's put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) Thank goodness for that. I know, I know. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, you've made me appreciate the simplicity of it and taking what is essentially a very simple short thing and teasing us here and there through it. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, he teases us constantly through it. You referenced the scene where the camera just shows him pretty much in that mm-hmm. whole conversation. If you just listen to the audio, if you closed your eyes and listened to that scene, you could pretty much understand almost everything everybody's saying. But because of the way the camera focuses mainly on him and you read his expressions, you right. become like him and you just sort of filter it. It's hard to follow what everybody's saying. Right. That is pretty clever. That's pretty clever. I also think, though, when I looked at it again, he is sort of a little ways off when Hermione has that conversation in the foyer where she says, I've got a surprise for him. I'm not sure he would have heard it anyway, but I got the sense that he's so inside himself with all that conversation and stuff that he wouldn't have heard it even if he next to her. He's just... Well, exactly. Know. And if that's the moment when I realize oh, I know how this is going to end, then it would have been obvious to him if he'd heard it too. Yeah. Because he knows her well enough to know she would do something like this. So that's his moment then. Right. Where he misses hearing that. And had he heard it, he would have known, uh (laughs) uh-oh. Right. Yeah. He misses the moment. He's too caught up in himself. Right. You're right. So I, I just like all of that. Yeah. Well, you've turned me around on this one, Al. I was disappointed because I think I wanted it to be grislier and more shocking. And actually, that isn't necessarily what he's all about. He's about teasing you and playing with you and moments of suspense scattered throughout. I still would have liked to have been a little bit more surprised about the twist at the end, but... Okay. Well, you know, I don't think I ever really am intending to sway you to my point of view. Oh, I know, um, but I, but, I you, know. And you never have, but, yeah. but I think you did this. Okay. I like it when we have different points of view on these things, but, but okay, if I swayed you, great. You know, and as far as the whole killing your wife thing, I think it works better if it's funnier, if it's lighter, because she doesn't deserve to die when we always know with Hitchcock, he's going to get caught. We, we knew he was going to get caught, but Again, it's like I said, she had that goofy officiousness and never stopped chatting kind of thing that you get in that era of comedies. Did you ever see the W.C. Fields movie? Um, oh, you know, his wives are always this way in, in his comedies. They're irritated with them. They're constantly talking, ordering him around, asking him to do stuff. And it's just, it's a funny trope. It works. Anyhow, I think you're right. By not having a mistress, by not being a creep, it lightens it all and just makes it dark humor, like you said. It it works because of that. And I'm appreciating that now, how that didn't bother me. And this is a guy who's planning to murder his wife and does murder his wife. There's nothing really funny about that. But because of the way it's all done and, and we sort of end up identifying with him. So it's all sort of designed. So even though he's doing something really horrible, that we're sort of on his side. Right. Well, I have to draw attention to the fact that I don't think this lightness and this humor was really present in the other Hitchcock directed ones. So you're seeing them all. 
this was a surprise for me, maybe. This was a yeah. little bit new. Not that I haven't seen it in his other movies. We just watched North by Northwest the other night. His humor, he's great with yeah. all the moments. You know, he's got them in, in so many movies, but this was jarring to me because I hadn't really detected quite this much playfulness and lightness. The others are disturbing and the tone is much darker. Yeah, that's and, true. Yeah, and so that's- the Joseph Cotton one is very dark. Yeah. 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 But even the end of, um, again, sorry, I don't remember the title of the very first one. Revenge. Revenge. Yeah. Even the end of that. I mean, that's much bleaker too. That's not, there's nothing funny about that. No, Maybe that actually is probably like the bleakest one because yeah. that has this tragic thing that happens and then it ends in this tragic fashion where at least yeah. in the breakdown at the end, they figure out that Joseph Cotton is still alive. So I it has a happy ending. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then the other one is Mr. Pelham, where he gets replaced by his double. Right. Which right. is, which That's is some lighter moments somewhat comedic. Yeah. 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 Well, that's interesting. And that covers it for me, I think. Okay, good. Well, thanks very much, Amy. As always, I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Al. It was fun. So my thanks again to Amy Cantu. And I hope to get her back again for the next Hitchcock-directed episode, Wet Saturday. But it'd be nice to get her back for some of the non-Hitchcock-directed episodes, too. All right. Seeing as this is Hitch's last directing job of the first season, I thought it might be a good time to go back to his earliest beginnings. Alfred Hitchcock was born on August 13, 1899, to William and Emma Hitchcock. His father was a greengrocer. He was the youngest of three kids, by quite a bit. Nine years younger than his brother, William, and seven years younger than his sister, Ellen, known as Nellie. He had six aunts and uncles, one of whom, according to Patrick McGilligan in his book, Alfred Hitchcock, A Life in Darkness and Light, left the United Kingdom in 1899, when she was just 20 years old, for South Africa to marry James Arthur Rhodes. Taken off the boat in Durban Harbor in a large wicker basket, Emma was then carried to safe ground on the backs of Zulu warriors. Here's Hitchcock telling a story to Francois Truffaut that he told often in his life, which may or may not be true. I was just sent along with a note. I must have been four or five years ago. And the, the head of the police read it. And put me into the cell. And said, so that's what we do to naughty boys. And what had you done to deserve that? I cannot imagine because my father used because my father used to call me the little lamb without a spot. <laughs> His family was Catholic and he was sent to school for a little while at St. Ignatius College. But at the age of 15, he took a job with W.T. Henley's Telegraph Works, a manufacturer and installer of electrical cables. His father died that same year at the age of 52. Now, Alfred started in the sales department at Henley's. Then while I was with the uh, engineering company, <coughs> I studied art at the University of London. Art à de Londres. And uh, then I got 
transferred to the advertising department, which enabled me to draw advertisements and design and uh, the beginning of ideas. He did more than that. He was the founding editor and business manager of the Henley Telegraph, a company periodical, and he contributed short stories to it. The very first issue of the Henley Telegraph contained his story entitled Gas. This story is reprinted by Donald Spoto in The Dark Side of Genius, by John Russell Taylor in Hitch, and by Patrick McGilligan in Alfred Hitchcock, A Life in Darkness and Light. Here it is. She had never been in this part of Paris before, only reading of it in the novels of Duvin or seeing it at the Grand Guignol. So this was the Montmartre, that horror where danger lurked under cover of night, where innocent souls perished without warning, where doom confronted the unwary, where the Apache reveled. She moved cautiously in the shadow of the high wall, looking furtively backward for the hidden menace that might be dogging her steps. Suddenly, she darted into an alleyway, little heeding where it led, groping her way on in the inky blackness, the one thought of eluding the pursuit firmly fixed in her mind. On she went. Oh, when would it end? Then a doorway from which a light streamed lent itself to her vision. In here, anywhere, she thought. The door stood at the head of a flight of stairs, stairs that creaked with age as she endeavored to creep down. Then she heard the sound of drunken laughter and shuddered. Surely this was... No, not that. Anything but that. She reached the foot of the stairs and saw an evil-smelling wine bar with wrecks of what once were men and women indulging in a drunken orgy. Then they saw her, a vision of affrighted purity. Half a dozen men rushed towards her amid the encouraging shouts of the rest. She was seized. She screamed with terror. Better had she been caught by her pursuer, was her one fleeting thought, as they dragged her roughly across the room. The fiends lost no time in settling her fate. They would share her belongings. And she... Why? Was not this the heart of Montmartre? She should go. The rats should feast. Then they bound her and carried her down the dark passage, up a flight of stairs to the riverside. The water rats should feast, they said. And then... Then, swinging her bound body to and fro, dropped her with a splash into the dark, swirling waters. Down she went, down, down, conscious only of a choking sensation. This was death. Then? It's out, madam, said the dentist. Half a crown, please. Since the writing of The Dark Side of Genius and Hitch, Patrick McGilligan discovered six more short features by Hitchcock in the Henley Telegraph. I'll read another one next time. In which firm did you go to work? Henley's. She Henley's. No, no, après Henley. After Henley. Ah, uh, famous players Lasky. C'est ça. Ah oui, on Famous players Lasky, British producers. C'est ça, à Islington. Yes, Islington, yes. Là, vous êtes rentré pour dessiner des, des titres. There you went to design titles. Yes, but I... I designed the titles oui, mais je les uh, 
But I didn't go to work immediately. I still had the other job. Mais je ne suis pas allé au travail immédiatement parce que je travaille encore à mon autre métier. Ah oui. Donald Spoto in The Dark Side of Genius writes, famous players Lasky Corporation in an attempt to profit from the popularity of American films abroad and the failure of most of the native products to captivate audiences came to London immediately after the armistice in a former power station of the Metropolitan Railway at Poole Street the company built its studio. There were two stages, space for shops and offices, and because of the pre-existing wiring, splendid possibilities for lighting designs and configurations. The managing director, J.C. Graham, was responsible to the American partners who controlled the company, Adolf Zukor and Jesse L. Lasky. About the time Hitchcock was preparing a portfolio to present to Graham and his colleagues, Zukor and Lasky visited Islington, separately between March and June 1920. They approved pre-production plans and budgets for the first films the company would produce in England. And the trade papers reported that their first picture would be The Sorrows of Satan. Accordingly, Hitchcock read the novel on which the screenplay would be based and included in his portfolio a series of designs appropriate to that story. By the time he was being considered for the part-time job of the title designer, however, a decision had been made to cancel The Sorrows of Satan and to proceed directly with Hugh Ford's film, The Great Day, to be followed by The Call of Youth. Eager to please his prospective employers, Hitchcock prepared designs for these films almost overnight and was hired at once, but only on a part-time basis. He continued to work at Henley's and provided the movie studio with title designs and graphics every few days. He was modestly compensated by famous players Lasky for the piecework which he produced on his own time. But when Hugh Ford's two films were successful, the studio decided to employ Hitchcock on a full-time basis, and he resigned from Henley's. Uh, and what was the drawings? What was their specific function, these drawings? Well, in those days, you see, all titles were illustrated. For example, uh, 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 you had in those days narrative titles and spoken titles. Came the Dawn is the most famous of all titles. Arriva le jour et le plus connu de tous ces titres narratifs. Vous avez le oui, lendemain. Oui, 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 et le oui. lendemain matin. Oui, oui, oui. Par exemple, si le titre disait uh, George was leading a very fast life by this time. George, à ce moment-là, faisait réellement les 400 coups. <laughs> We would have the lettering, but underneath, Nous aurions ces, I, ces choses en lettres. I would draw aussi. a candle. With a flame at each end. Ah, oui. <laughs> Alfred Hitchcock was the title designer for eight films from 1920 to 1922. The Great Day, The Call of Youth, Appearances, The Mystery Road, The Princess of New York, Dangerous Lies, Beside the Bonnie Briar Bush, known in the United States as simply the Bonnie Briar Bush, and Perpetua, known in the United States as Love's Boomerang. He was art director and title designer for four more, Three Live Ghosts, The Spanish Jade, The Man from Home, and Tell Your Children. 
all of these films are completely lost, except Three Live Ghosts and The Man From Home. The first of these, The Great Day, was based on a play by Louis Napoleon Parker and George Robert Sims. Here is the plot, according to Wikipedia. Frank Beresford and Clara Borstwick have married against the wishes of her father, Sir John Borstwick. Immediately following the marriage, Lillian Leeson, to whom Frank had formerly been married, appears with the intent to blackmail. Frank had told Clara of the former marriage and had believed that Lillian was dead. Frank goes to Paris to find a former friend that he believed to be dead, who was a former husband of Lillian. He recognizes Dave Leeson, and they return to England. Dave frustrates the attempt by Lillian to spoil Frank's happiness, and there is a reconciliation with Clara. This is all from the Hitchcock Zone wiki. Following the trade screening, the Times complained that when compared to the stage play, the film was full of missed opportunities and lamented the loss of several crucial scenes. For example, the great spectacular effect of the play was the scene in an underground cafe in Paris, which is suddenly submerged when the Seine bursts its banks. Here, at any rate, one thought there would be an opportunity for the film studio, which is equipped with a wonderful tank, to show how dangerous a rival it could be to Mr. Arthur Collins. Arthur Collins staged the play. But in the film, the whole idea has changed. The Seine never overflows, and all one sees after a rough-and-tumble fight is two of the characters falling into a sewer from which they are rescued without any great difficulty. A review followed a few weeks later in Variety, and it said in part, The scenario is lacking in the dramatic power that characterized the play, and the producer has certainly not made the best of his opportunities, although the stagecraft is admirable. And the Film Daily Review said, The Great Day falls way short of being a great picture, and the adaptation of the Drury Lane melodrama is just barely fair entertainment. The story development is logical and well enough done, but there is no dramatic force. The various situations are introduced and concluded in the same tone. There is no variation, and even the climax is reached without any tensity of action. The director has given good attention to technical matters, but the picture lacks punch, or the sort of thing that puts a picture over, makes an impression. The players, too, are at fault for not making the bigger scenes stand out. They don't vary their emotions or actions in accord with the moment. And finally, a short review in Photoplay said, This is the first product of the famous players' British studios, and a distinct disappointment. Except for some charming country scenes and several shots of the impressive Alps, the real Alps, there is nothing in it to hold the interest. I'm going to take a quick look at another Hitchcock title design film, The Call of Youth, next time. And now it's time for Hitch to close things out. The only trouble is, according to the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion, the DVD set is missing the pre-commercial part of the outro. In it, Hitch says, I think the lesson of that story is worth repeating. Gentlemen, dig deep. So much for our play. Now for the bright spot in an otherwise somber picture. On the instructions of our foster father, I will be returning to you. Alfred Hitchcock presents Season 1, The Dark Side of Genius, The Life of Alfred Hitchcock, by Donald Spoto, Monsieur Verdoux, The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, Lust for Life, four film favorites of Jerry Lewis, including The Errand Boy, 
The Young Philadelphians, Torn Curtain, Gone with the Wind, Leave it to Beaver Season 1, The Twilight Zone Season 2, and Limelight are all available at the Ann Arbor District Library. Hitch 20 and the Hitch 20 Extra, the Tales of the Unexpected episode, the Charlie Rose conversation with Pat Hitchcock and Peter Bogdanovich, Stephen Sondheim's Evening Primrose, the 1943, 1948, and 1956 episodes of Suspense, the 1947 episode of Escape, the Hitchcock-Truffaut segments, the Paradine Case, Forever in a Day, Sherlock Holmes in Washington, The Scarlet Claw, The Silent Service episode, Daddy, Won't You Please Come Home from Thunderbolt, and the Los Angeles 1950s travelogue are all available online. If you would like to contact me about this podcast, please email me at sherdsmaa at aadl.org. That's S-J-O-E-R-D-S-M-A-A at aadl.org. And please put Hitchcock somewhere in the subject line. And one last thing. Just days after posting the last episode on Place of Shadows, too late to include this, I came upon a 1957 CBS Radio Theater production of Robert Heinlein's The Green Hills of Earth, starring Everett Sloan as Risling, the blind poet of the spaceways. We started this podcast with Anthony Perkins singing, so let's wrap up with Everett Sloan doing the same. Let the sweet, fresh breezes heal me as they roll around the girth of our lovely mother planet of the cool green hill of earth. We pray for one last landing on the globe that gave us birth. Let us rest our eyes on the fleecy skies. Reisling. Reisling. And the cool green hill of earth. And the cool green hill of earth. Next time, episode 24, The Perfect Murder, starring Herd Hatfield and Mildred Natwick. Back to Hitch to wrap up. Now he is holding the shrunken head stand. And for those who don't know, samphorizing is, according to textilecourse.blogspot.com, a controlled compressive shrinkage process which is applied on fabric to achieve shrinkage before making the garments. That concludes our sideshow. We shall be back next week to... He sees something on the underside of the shrunken head stand. Made in Texas by Texans with New Yorkers. I think I'd better be trotting off. I've just decided to have my hair sanferized. Good night. <laughs>